So we've all been on retreat mode for three days now, and I trust that everybody is beginning at least to feel the benefit of the simplification, the lack of distraction and outer commitments, and also the benefit of offering ourselves into willingly offering ourselves into the moment in the absence of outer distractions we we can follow our inner interests and I understand that's why why people want to come to places like this and 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 do such things as go on retreat because it can be hard work i i'm sure not all of you are you know totally relaxed and and um absorbed in happiness all day long not talking and periods of sitting can can be hard work but we offer ourselves into this work because there are heart matters that we feel drawn into because we care about these heart matters. We want to offer our attention to them. So this evening there's um, one new question has been deposited into the gong. Um, I did incidentally find it deposited uh, just before puja. Um, I would ask if if uh, if you could try and have it in by 4.30 so that I've got time to ponder the questions. Uh, of course, as I said before, if there aren't any questions, that's absolutely fine. We can sit in silence um, again. But if there are things that you have on your mind that you'd like to have raised for consideration, uh, please find your own way of, of writing them down and, and um, bringing them up here. Um, and also, I've, for the last several days, I've, I've said I was going to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, I don't want to end this evening by saying I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. So I'd like to begin by talking about the four foundations of mindfulness tonight. Um, it's been interesting. I, I, I was wondering why I was so hesitant. I mean, four foundations of mindfulness is, you know, this is, you know, this is the very basis of Theravadan Buddhism. Um, and I was, I was, I was distinctly hesitant, as you might have observed, and I, I wondered what was behind it. And today I realized 
Well, I'm sure there was a mixture of things. Possibly one aspect is that it's, it is, a, as the very foundation of Theravadan Buddhism, it's a, it's a very profound teaching, and um, the Buddha gave it a lot of attention, <coughs> elaborated on the subject extensively, and um, there is a certain hesitation to not do it an injustice. But more than that, I feel the, uh, the hesitation was to do with not wanting my mind to go into um, technician mode. And I don't know about you, but I have, uh, I've often heard the four foundations of mindfulness spoken about and I've read about it in a way that takes my mind into this attitude of, well, this is the thing I've got to do to fix myself up and get enlightened. And... And I call this, I refer to this as the technician mode, and it's um, very uncomfortable. It doesn't fit with what I uh, am really interested in. What I find really inspiring about this Buddhist path and, and the teachers and the training that I've had the privilege to, to um, receive is the support for what I would feel is an orientation of being, rather than a technician, being, being a disciple, being a disciple of life, being a disciple of life. Uh, somebody who is, who is present for life in all its manifestations and willing and interested to learn from all of it and all its manifestations. And so the feeling I have when I consider uh, being a, a disciple of life is very open and accommodating and allowing and alive. Whereas when my mind goes into technician mode, it feels very contracted and limited and, and unattractive. So I suppose I've, I, have, I have had a reservation about attempting to, to give even a brief presentation on the Buddhist teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness because I, I didn't want to go into this mode and I didn't want us to go into this mode. I, I, regularly people will, will come to people like myself and, and ask for you know, the answer and say, what should I do now? And give me the technique. And I suppose partly I was afraid this is where this question was coming from. Probably it wasn't. It was a, probably a misjudgment on my part. But I, I guess I was somewhat afraid maybe this is where the question was coming from. And I, I suspect that I suspected also that question the other night of, you know, why are we having six half-hour sitting periods instead of ten hours in forced sitting during the week? Uh, I suspected that that was coming from a similar place, where there was somehow wanting the system, wanting me or wanting the structure to do it for us. And I feel very cautious of this. I, I, uh, I'm, I am very afraid where, where we project onto structures undue responsibility, undue authority. The structures have their place, for sure, the conventions have their place, but surely it's it's the spirit that matters. It's the spirit of practice that 
that we're in this for. It's the freedom that we're in this for. And many times I've heard the teachings, including the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, spoken about as a technique that if you can just do it right, then you'll you'll get the right goal. And it feeds into this goal-oriented kind of effort that to me always feels busy. Always going somewhere. There's always something more I've got to do. There's always another problem I've got to solve. There's always another stage I've got to reach, another level I've got to attain, another insight I've got to have. And that's okay, I suppose, in the beginning as a motivation, but to always be coming from a place of feeling like this, what's the next thing I have to do? In my mind, anyway, it always keeps me in a state of, of busyness. And there isn't a sense of contentment. So some time ago, in my own practice, I, I reached a point where I, I found what was really called for was a letting go of that kind of effort, that goal-oriented effort. And it was, it was rather forced on me by, by reaching a point of utter impossibility. I'm not going to go into the details, it's too gruesome, but reaching a point where it seemed like absolutely nothing more I could do was going to fix it. And reaching that point of utter impossibility with hindsight, I, I can look back now and see it was a great blessing. And I'm pleased I was supported and contained adequately to reach that point and, and to survive uh, that point. But coming out of that was a, a new feeling, a new appreciation of practice that instead of being goal-oriented in my effort, it was what I would call source-oriented. And it's characterized by a sense of, of trust. I spoke about before the difference of coming from a feeling of inadequacy and I've got to do something to fix myself up and make myself whole and complete and I've got to get enlightened. The difference between that and and coming from a feeling of, of trust in inherent adequacy where there's a, a quality of presence, a quality of humbly waiting for reality to manifest itself instead of me struggling to discover reality or even create reality, which there was a bit of that around as well. So the difference between a technician's or a technical approach to practice and, and that of somebody who's a disciple of life, I think is something worth contemplating. A technician, in the way I use the word, sees the form as the point. Just goes through the form, goes, does what we're told to do, and, and, uh, and that's it. Whereas a disciple of life sees beyond the form, feels beyond the form, towards the spirit. So with regards to this particular teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, it's very elaborate. And yes, there's a lot that's said about the first, the, first, the second, the third, and the four, fourth foundations of mindfulness. But it's essential to remember the, the point or the spirit 
of cultivation of these foundations of mindfulness. It's the the point is to arrive at the quality of seeing the underlying view that means we can know beyond the way things appear to be. So the way things appear to be, as I was saying the other day, the mundane example I gave of, of um, you know, somebody making a noise while I'm busy meditating and, and um, I feel justified or righteous and getting indignant and, and blaming them for, for disturbing me. Now that's an apparent reality. You know, I'm justified in getting indignant because somebody did something to annoy me. Now, that's just the way it appears to be. And if we're really stuck on form, you know, I could give this person a good ticking off and say, you know, you're going to sit in this meditation hall, you've got to do better than that. But if we're committed to spirit, the spirit of practice is freedom itself. And so even though from the level of form, maybe you know, we shouldn't bang our stool and make noise while other people are meditating, from the perspective of spirit, freedom is the point. And so if that's what we're really, really committed to, then we're not going to get caught up in indignation or rage or, or where form is, is um, offended. So the four foundations of mindfulness are most simply, the first is mindfulness of body. In Pali it says kayanusati. Sati, as we all know, is mindfulness. and When it talks about nusati, it means a reflection on or contemplation of. And so like in the chanting we do buddha nusati, dhamma nusati, sangha nusati, the reflection on or contemplation of the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So in the four foundations of mindfulness is kaya nusati, reflection on the body, or mindfulness of the body, vedana nusati, reflection on or mindfulness of feelings, jitta nusati, reflection on or contemplation of the nature of the heart or the mind, and dhamma nusati, reflection of on or contemplation of dhamma. Now, in just briefly to elaborate on these, the, the first foundation of mindfulness, I think it's no coincidence that the Buddha has encouraged a mindfulness of the body as the first foundation of mindfulness. You know, those of us who've been meditating for a while know that you know, if we pay attention to our feelings, when we're not really grounded in the body, it's quite easy to get caught up in them. Or we start going into mental phenomena and we're not well established in mindfulness of the body. It's very easy to get caught up in the mental phenomena. And somebody asked the question the other day of, you know, how, how can I look at things in my mind without being caught into analytical thinking and, and dragged away by it? If we're not properly grounded in the body, then it's very easy to get caught up in it. And with Dhamma Nusati, the, the contemplation on the, the content of the mind or the, the phenomena, the patterns of, of the mind that the Buddha identified as that which we need to see through to be able to recognize for liberation to take place. These four foundations of mindfulness. So the first, uh, the f- establishing ourselves in the body, uh, 
to really value that. Uh, often in the, in the meditation, in the guided meditation, I, I will start by encouraging us all to be aware of our body posture. And this is one of the recommendations that the Buddha gave us as a foundation, as, a, as an actual technique for, for establishing ourselves in the body, is to be mindful of the body posture, to simply attend to body posture. And, and uh, I have these, these various little images that I use that, that are like keys to bring me into the body. And, and uh, I find images work better than, 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 uh, than ideas. And so when I, when I think of my body in meditation, I, I imagine myself as one, like one of those Hare Krishnas with the top knot here, you know, they've got a bit of hair here. And I imagine being pulled up by, by my top knot. I imagine the Devas floating around. I think there's a lot of Devas live on this hill. And uh, I haven't seen any. Although I took a photograph the other day of Mike and Carol and there was just a rainbow beside Carol. And it might have been a Dewa. Uh, I've heard from other people that there's beings living on this hill. Anyway, I like to think there's Dewas here. and I imagine there's one got my top knot and just pulling me up. I don't use the muscles. I just imagine it's being pulled up. And then with my shoulders, I, I imagine I've been carrying two buckets of water for hours. My shoulders suddenly drop down. And then the chest open, and and then from the from the the belly down here in the belly, I imagine that I'm being dragged forward. I got a belt around my belly, and and that I, I have this picture of being dragged forward from a rope from my belly, and then the lower part of the back just naturally goes in. And then I imagine the last thing, this image I have is that I'm in a competition to see who can squash their zafu most. Now, <laughs> excuse this, this is, sounds pretty silly, but it works. I imagine that we're in a competition here to who can end the meditation with the most squashed zafu. And so I, I find this optimum position for putting maximum weight on my zafu. And what it does actually is it puts me in the right balance, where I'm absolutely balanced. And there's this weight really going down, really sinking in the ground. And so these little images... I, just, I practice them often, and these little keys of a day were pulling me a top knot up, carrying the buckets of sand, and being pulled forward by from the waist, and squashing my zafu. These little keys I just remind myself of from time to time through the meditation. It brings me back into the body. So this is just one example you can find for yourself. Uh, ways of being mindful of body posture. I would, however, uh, warn against using your muscles, intentionally stretching, straining your muscles in meditation willfully to try and assume a posture. Uh, if you do that with will, you're almost bound to be interrupting the breathing. And remember our meditation on breathing, the breath needs to be relaxed. And it is. So this is another one of the objects of meditation the Buddha gave. Skillful means for developing and mindfulness of the body is the breath. You know, to to pay attention to the breathing. Yeah. The breath is in the body. It's sufficiently coarse to keep in touch with the body, but it's sufficiently subtle, it's regular. And as somebody pointed out the other day, it can be intensely boring. It's not too stimulating to, to be uh, dragging us off in all sorts of directions. And it's very tangible. So the, the breath also, mindfulness of the breath, is given as an example of mindfulness of in the body. And then also, the, well, there's a lot, there's, there's also the 32 parts of the body, actually mentally dissecting the body, 
going through and you know in your mind actually taking parts taking the body apart and putting little piles in front of you there's hair of the head a bunch of head hair hair of the body you know shaving the body hair hair of the head hair of the body nails you've got a bunch of fingernails teeth you've got a pile of teeth over here in front of you skin you've got the skin all stripped off you did anybody go to see that exhibition in london there was this marvelous exhibition by a german chap recently he he uh, he, he dissected bodies and and plasticized them and and you could see these wonderful exhibitions there's this guy sitting on a horse with his skin all draped over his arm fascinating well that's the sort of thing that, that you do but you do it with your mind you pile the skin up there and then you've got a bucket full of blood and and then a saucer full of snot and and mucus and you know some feces over there and you know this this was another um, recommended meditation for mindfulness of the body. So, <laughs> choose which one you like. <laughs> you know, and people are different. And, um, and, you know, we can joke about it, but actually for somebody who is really lustful and obsessed with desire, to uh, use the 32 parts of the body is very cooling and works as like a medicine. It actually cools the heart and mind down. Uh, since most of us are of a, of a, of a more negative disposition, always finding something to complain and criticize about, then, then probably something a little more neutral like the breath is more suitable. But we can experiment with these things. So the first foundation of mindfulness, most briefly, briefly is, is the, uh, we're given these skillful means for learning how to inhabit our body. It's primary. So long as we're alive, we need to know we're in our bodies. And then on this foundation, we can develop the others and the mindfulness of feeling. I've already spoken about the mindfulness of, of liking and disliking, agreeability and disagreeability. You know, coming to, to see these as like objects of awareness where we can simply see pleasure or agreeability in the mind, pleasurable feeling, pleasurable sensation, pleasure without adding anything to it or taking anything away from it or pain just displeasure discomfort to be able to to cultivate a mindfulness simply around this feeling of displeasure dislikability and then neutral feeling also in between the third foundation of mindfulness 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 of the word is jitta, and, and so it's variously translated as heart or mind, and both of these words have an appropriate and useful uh, connotation. The mind gives us the feeling of, of that inner dimension of our being. However, it has the unfortunate connotation of being totally up in the head, which is not the whole point. Heart, on the other hand, if we talk about mindfulness of the heart, well... You know, then we could start thinking, well, this is just all, you know, being aware of my emotions, which is certainly not it. It's the dimension of knowingness, mindfulness of the knowingness. What, what kind of knowingness have we got? Have we got a kind of a, a heated up, angry kind of infected knowingness? Have we got a, a very cool, laid back, gentle, open hearted knowingness? Have we got an expanded knowingness or have we got a, a tight, contracted, limited knowingness? Have we got an agitated knowingness? Have we got a still, tranquil knowingness? 
developing a mindfulness around the state of the mind or the heart itself. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is referred to as Dhamma Nusati, and mindfulness of Dhamma, are these phenomena of our inner reality that the Buddha identified as needing to be recognized for liberation to take place. And so then there's these lists, all these lists that you can go through, and that's why I said to whoever asks the question, go and read a book, because you can read all these lists, but in this list there's the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, sorry, the, 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 the four noble truths, and, and there's the five aggregates of being, there's the five hindrances, you all know the five hindrances that, that we, we have to deal with in meditation, there's the seven factors of enlightenment. These are, I like to see them as patterns of inner dynamics that, that the Buddha identified as uh, the kind of structures or interactivity that that if we see them for what they are, then our whole being moves along the path, to put it most simply. So these structures, these tools were identified by the Buddha and we're encouraged to pick them up in service of the spirit of freedom. But again, to, to really emphasize that however we pick up these tools of practice, however we relate to these skillful means, it, let's be careful that we remember what we're in it for. Yeah. We're not just in it to become really good meditators. When we don't study books just to know all about Buddhism. Yeah we pick up these practices so that which the heart longs for most, that freedom from suffering, that, that recognition, that confidence of the way to live our lives free from doubt, free from fear, free from the obstructions that normally hinder us in our progress through life. Now this other question that has been offered this evening, I feel also relates to this. It says, how do I balance social action with dispassion and acceptance of things as they are? How do I balance social action, doing something, with dispassion and acceptance of things as they are? A sense of injustice is often the motivational force to act and persevere given that it is my job to challenge poor practice in organizations, how do I balance these different aspects of my practice? Not to act feels like a collusion in wrongdoing. Plus, I'd probably lose my job. I would say first that um, balancing social action and dispassion and acceptance of the way things are is really a question of 
holding in mindfulness the different dimensions of our being. Now this is using a model, and we have to use language and to talk about this practice, but I find the model of, of, of our life, of our being, as of being multidimensional. There are different dimensions of our life. We have the physical dimension, we have the emotional dimension, the mental dimension, the spiritual dimension. I was speaking the other night about the psychological dimension. So I think to have this model is helpful because sometimes it feels like we're caught in a in a conflict like you know between social action and and then the Buddhist teaching on cultivating dispassion and acceptance of the way things are it feels like a paradox and it feels like there's a a painful paradox it feels like there's a contradiction there yes we are taught you know, this is the way things are this is how it is i mean how many times have we heard it it's just the way things are you know you feel angry well it's just anger it's just so yeah. desire is just desire but the world we live in is full of injustices and there are things going on that are wrong if we're you know talking about activity there is right and there is wrong so if we can understand that consideration of the wrongs and rights of the activity of the world, the outer world, is one dimension. And we can use our minds to consider these things. And yet at the same time to recognize that there's, there are un- other dimensions, underlying dimensions, which I like to think of as the, like the way we view life. The underlying view of life can be can be recognized and can be cultivated and needs to be cultivated this is specifically what a lot of our formal practice is about is getting quiet getting subtle going deeper until we actually start to get a feeling for a recognition of the underlying views that we hold yeah. I was speaking earlier today with somebody about the underlying tendencies that that we all have to be compulsively judging. There's this tendency in the mind to always be taking sides, right, wrong, good, bad, for and against. It's like a sports commentator sitting there on the fence just yabbering on, yeah, 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 this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, you're doing well, you're not doing well, should be like this, shouldn't be like that, why didn't he say this, why didn't he say that, why did he say that, he shouldn't have said that, he should have said this, she should be here, why was... Endlessly going on. Shouldn't, shouldn't. And it's been there for so long that we don't even know it's there a lot of the time. In a situation like this where we have a privilege of a very simple situation without any distractions and we can allow our attention to go inwards and focus inwardly, get subtle, get quiet. And if we pay careful feeling attention in the right way at the right time we can identify this this is not actually a permanent thing this is not an obligation we don't have to be judging all the time some desire comes up in your mind say you know i haven't had any praise for a long time i'd like to be recognized it's about time i was recognized somebody needs to offer me some praise and and um 
I'll just go off and perform in front of somebody so they give me a little praise. And Now, of course, I'm being a bit gross and exaggerating, but, you know, something like that might occur to some of us. And, uh, and then you recognize it in your mind and think, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a terrible tendency. Fancy looking for praise and wanting, you know, that's really, I shouldn't be having such, I shouldn't want affection. You know, I should be beyond wanting affection and praise and fear of blame and criticism. I mean, I've been practicing all these years, I shouldn't be having this kind of state of mind. Who said we shouldn't be having a sort of state of mind? Yeah. Ajahn Chah once said to me, if you shouldn't be this way, you wouldn't be this way. That was very helpful. There are causes for these things to arise. So of course you should be thinking that thought. That's exactly the thought you should be thinking. There are causes for you to think that. There are causes for you to feel that way. That's great that you know you feel that way. What's not so great is that you actually add to it by saying, I shouldn't be feeling this way. So this underlying tendency to be judgmental can be so compulsive that we haven't seen it before. And so we need a situation like this to actually get subtle, get refined and, and go in there and, 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 and recognize it for what it is. And then in the, in the, in the simple, very careful, skillful, skillful recognition of it, we can undo it. And this is addressing the underlying views with which we approach life. This is an example of addressing the underlying view that we have of life, the way we approach life. If we're always going through life with a compulsive judging mind, it, it keeps us divided. We always feel like there's, you know, there's a challenge, there's, you know, and, and, and this has been conditioned so deeply into us that we, we think it's natural, but it's not natural. It's something we do. It's understandable that we do it because of the, the way we were reared. You know, there's a, a church in the middle of Newcastle and it's painted on the front doors. Love all good, hate all evil. Now, you know, that if you're brought up with that sort of conditioning, and many of us were, well then, you know, you get fundamentally divided. God loves good and hates evil. And the good ones he embraces and takes up to heaven and have a good time forever. And the bad ones he chucks into hell and they're going to have a bad time forever. And so if we want to be virtuous, and you know, as we all do, you know, we want to play God. And so we, 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 we set up this psychotic monster that's just judging all the time, sitting there taking sides for and against ourselves. And it's terrible. It tears us apart. But the good news is that actually it's not an obligation at all. We don't have to do it. We don't have to be doing this judgment. We can actually, with simple, careful, kind, patient attention, recognize it as a tendency of mind. And having seen it, then little by little, if we don't get caught up in it, if we don't start playing its game and trying to stop, you know, judge the judging mind and saying, I shouldn't be judging, and that's not it. We just know the judging mind. The judging mind is just so. And so to some degree we purify, and in, in, in such a moment we, we purify the view, we purify the underlying view that we have of life. Now, so on that dimension of our being, there's, there's that work to do, and I would suggest that if we recognize these different dimensions, we can do such work in a situation like this or in our daily life where we, 
we set time aside, hopefully for 30 minutes or so a day to set a formal meditation, if you can find it, or at least 10 minutes, to sit and be still and go back to this basic feeling of total non-judgmental relationship with life. Perfect receptivity to the moment. Call it meditation, call it contemplation, call it whatever. But putting some time aside to value this part of our life, to keep this alive. And I trust that then, as we come out into more, uh, use the word, coarser aspects of of our lives, the activity of our life. We have to engage with people and situations and and make decisions and so on. So the decisions we make will be informed by that underlying view. And so even though there can appear to be a paradox, we something within us knows it's an, it's an apparent paradox. And the mindfulness, the awareness, means we can hold it. We can hold it, and this is why it's so important to, to, for instance, to purify our awareness from compulsive judging tendencies. So long as we're still judging what comes up into our awareness, chronically judging, saying, I shouldn't feel this way, I should feel that way, or if you know, we're going the other way and we're having a good experience and, and the mind's going, this is just how it should be, this is, I'm doing great now, well, it's only just a matter of time before we go the other way and it shouldn't be like this. So long as we're caught up in the compulsive judging mind, well then our capacity for holding the paradoxes of life is very limited. So there are always going to be paradoxes. And if we, as I was saying before, really interested in the spirit of practice, not just the forms, we're not just mindfulness of the breathing and the way whereby we, we watch our breath, we count our breath, but we're actually not really there as a whole body mind feeling the breath, knowing the breath, cultivating right mindfulness of the body breathing, we're just doing some technique, then we're only relating to the form and that will have only a very limited benefit for us. But if we're primarily committed to the spirit of practice, well then we'll be looking at mindfulness, we'll be interested in mindfulness. Is is mindfulness increasing? Is mindfulness developing? What is the function of mindfulness? How can I develop mindfulness in this situation? And when we come across a, a paradox, instead of automatically turning to some form or other to make us feel safe again, we actually use the paradox to increase the capacity for holding paradox. It's actually only frustration which gives us that increased capacity. And if we, if we get that message early on in practice, well then it's a, it's a great blessing. Because sooner or later, I would suggest that all of us not just once, but probably a good number of times, will reach the point of utter impossibility where there's nothing we can do about it. We've tried all our techniques and I can't fix it. And yet I can't stop trying. Ajahn Chah is is famously known for writing a letter to Ajahn Sumato after he'd been in England for, for a year or two and and in this letter he pointed out to Ajahn Sumato, he said, he said, Sumato, you should know that practice begins, begins that is, practice begins when you reach the point 
where you can't go forward anymore and you can't go back anymore and you can't stand still. That's a, that's a helpful thing to remember. If we don't necessarily understand the relative function of forms and we give them too much value, well then we'll sometimes maybe feel betrayed by practice. We'll say, well I've been keeping my precepts and I've been meditating and I've been going to the monastery and I've been going on retreat and, and you know, and, and I just feel betrayed and let down by it all. You know, Buddhism's failed me and, you know, it's an Asian religion anyway. I shouldn't have messed with it in the first place. You know, I've heard this said more than once. Yeah. It's not an Asian religion. You know, Buddhism is not an Asian religion. There are Asian conventions around the reality that Buddhism is pointing towards. But Buddhism is not an Asian religion. Truth is not Asian. It's not Western. But if we don't really understand the relative function of forms, well, we, you know, we, we could see it that way. And the world does generally see it that way. You, know, the, you, you look at the, you know, the media. It's always playing with these things. And, you know, but what is the spirit? What is the point behind these conventions? That's what we need to be interested in. Now, if we have a regular practice, and I would hope that we all do, then I trust that we do come to experience an increasing capacity to hold paradox, an increasing appreciation of spirit, and how form is there to serve spirit. And with this comes a a sense of agility, I was talking about the other night, that we know time and place, that we're not going to get tripped up so much by by the paradoxes of life. There always, there's always something waiting to trip us up. And now talking about it, sounding so confident as I am, probably tomorrow something will come along and trip me up. It, it works like that. The more confident you get, the, the more likely Mara is to come on down and just give you a good kick in the butt. And the trick is, even if you fall over, it's just to roll and get up again quickly. Yeah, don't worry about falling. It's like judo, and it's not a matter if you get thrown, it's how you fall that matters. Yeah. So agility and, and, a, and, a, and a knowledge of how to relate according to time and place. This particular question here of you know, social action and, and dispassion, and, and you know, somebody, a committed meditator, goes into a job where you have to actually challenge people for their incompetence in the job. Uh, that can feel very challenging and, and difficult. But if there is the underlying commitment to the spirit of practice, then I trust that there will be the wisdom and compassion there as a resource that will inform the decisions we have to make. So we offer ourselves into the situation, even if it's difficult, with the agility and, and, and this, as I was saying, this capacity for knowing time and place. It's magic, basically. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah, I've been in many situations where I've felt like you know, I, I just couldn't handle it. And something wonderful just comes along and, and handles it for me. Now, I'm not making claim to handling all the situations. I make a mess often, I can assure you. But sometimes it just happens right. 
And you don't even feel like, well, I did it. Well, you can if you're heedless. You can lay claim to it and say, well, I handled that one all right, didn't I? That's not it. If we know the spirit of practice and we're in this for Dhamma, not for personality, then there's something quiet and grateful within us that says, oh, that's it. And we're encouraged in our commitment to practice. Or if we do fall flat on our face and we blow it and say, oh, well, you know, you know, recommit ourselves to practice. And as it's saying that the bigger you get, the more likely you are to fall flat on your face. And Mara doesn't like it. And, and, and this image down the back here in the Dhamma Hall of the, the Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree resolved to, to awaken to truth. And you've got all these monsters off there on the side there shooting arrows and throwing spears and threatening to kill him and and that's how it feels at times. We commit ourselves to practice and to truth. And it doesn't matter who we are and what our walk of life is. Uh, it can be like that. But let's remember our commitment to the spirit of practice. I was reminded recently of that situation a, a few years ago when, um, well, not so long ago, when, remember Glenn Hoddle, he was the, um, what was he, the coach of the English football team? Is that what he was? The coach of the English football team? And then somebody, some, some newspaper interviewer asked him about, you know, knew about his belief in reincarnation and so asked him this question. and said, oh, do you believe then that people who are crippled, you know, have done bad things in their last life and they, you know, they earned their, their crippled disease or something like that? And Gled Hoddle, you know, said yes. And uh, the next thing you know, it's all over the paper. You know, Glenn Hoddle's a monster. And, of course, he lost his job as coach of the team and he was thrown out. And um, somebody asked the Dalai Lama, you know, what about this thing that Glenn Hoddle did? You know, was he right or was he wrong? <laughs> and the Dalai Lama said, well, yeah, he was right, but he shouldn't have said it. <laughs> You know, you've got to recognise a newspaper interviewer for what they are. Yeah. This is this is part of it. This is the, you know, if we're committed to spirit, as the Dalai Lama clearly is, uh, committed to spirit. There's an agility. There's a knowledge. There's a, we know time and place. Yes, it feels frustrating, but a lot of the frustration comes from because we're holding the forms in the wrong way. We're trying to do it. We're trying to get it right. This is not about trying to do it or trying to get it right. It's about trusting. It's about trusting in the way itself, trusting in the power of Dhamma. Yes, in the beginning we pick up the forms, whether it's the four, four foundations of mindfulness or mindfulness of breathing and all the other teachings that we've heard and we take these practices seriously and we hold them firmly because it's, it's, we value it. But as we go on in practice, we've got to learn to hold them more lightly. We don't drop them too quickly. We don't hold them so lightly so quickly because that's what somebody said we should do and so we drop them and we're not doing anything anymore and just say everything is the way it is, I don't need to practice. That's not it. But as we use conventions, whatever they are, as we use structures, let's also be mindful of not just what we're doing but how we're doing it. The relationship to the the practices, the forms, the the structures that we're using, whether it's the meditation structures, whether it's the 
you know, the forms that we have in the monastery. You come to the monastery and there's all these traditions, bowing and chanting, and in the beginning it's all a bit strange and, and we feel a bit rigid and our relationship to these things and a bit clumsy, but hopefully as the months and years go by, we learn to hold them more lightly. And there can be a grace and an elegance and, 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 and a joy in using these forms. For us who live in the monastery, it's, it's actually a conscious training to learn to relate to conventions and to know conventions. This is, this is, this is the realm of conventions. We, we learn how to be skilled at using conventions and then also how to be relaxed at them. Like, for instance, if the fortnightly uh, recitation of the rule where we sit here in the Dhamma Hall and, and one monk recites the rules for 227 precepts, it's a lot of effort and we're all focused. And, and, and then afterwards there's some discussion and, you know, amongst ourselves and questions of training come up. And, and then when the monks address me, they put their hands together formally and anjali, address me as Ajamanindo and and I'm the leader of the community, and it's understood as a ritual situation, and there's this form, and there's this convention, and we use it because it's got a certain value. We may not recognize it in the beginning, but as the years go by, we start to actually feel the value of these conventions and these rituals. And yet when we're in the sauna there together, you know, we're all sitting around, and there's a high level and a low level, and, you know, I don't always have to have the high level, maybe I'm on the low level, and we're all sitting in there, and we just got a, a little bathing cloth on, or a pair of shorts, and... You know, they don't put their hands together in Anjali. You know. They don't say, hey, Menindo, chuck us a towel, will you? I mean, they don't, they don't go that far. But there is a, there's a different way. I'm still Ajahn Menindo, even in the sauna, but there's a different way of... <laughs> there's a different way of holding the convention. And this is something that we actually talk about. And, and we, you know, there's, a conscious, there's a conscious effort to, to learn to use these conventions skillfully. And if we do learn to use them skillfully, well then we can see that these forms, these conventions, are there to serve spirit, to serve freedom. It's not the other way around. If it's the other way around where, where spirit is made to serve form, then I just say, give it a break. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Andamaya Andamawadagata Sadhu Karan